You're listening to Creativity Quest, hosted by me, author and writing mindset coach, Carrie Schaefer. Join me and my guests on our quest to ditch our doubts, dance with our demons, and delve into creative delight. Creativity Quest is owned and copyrighted by Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Now, let's get creative. Hey, creative people. Carrie Schaefer here with another episode of Creativity Quest. You may have noticed I've been absent for a couple of weeks, and that is because I got to be a speaker on a writer cruise. And I am telling you, getting to go on a fantastic cruise ship and snorkel in the Bahamas and all of those things, well, you know, quote unquote, working is a fantastic way to spend my writer life. And now I'm back and working hard on uh, new books and having a lot of fun. Today is also super fun again because I have a guest for us and her name is Virginia Cantra. I'm going to read a little bit about her for you here and then I'll introduce her and we're just going to have a great conversation. Um, Virginia Cantra, New York Times bestselling author. She is the author of more than 20 novels. Her stories have earned numerous awards, including two Romance Writers of America's Rita Awards. I've got to stop, interrupt myself right there and say, I covet Rita's. They are (laughs) Um, 10 Rita nominations, two National Reader's Choice Awards. Carolina Dreaming, the fifth book in her Dare Island series, won the 2017 Rita Award for Best Contemporary Romance Mid-Length and was named one of BookPage's top 10 romance novels of 2016. Virginia is married to her college sweetheart, a coffee shop owner who keeps her well supplied with caffeine, caffeine, I can't, caffeine, caffeine, and material. They make their home in North Carolina, where they raise three mostly adult children. She is a firm believer in the strength of family, the importance of storytelling, and the power of love. Her favorite thing to make for dinner, reservations. Well, welcome, Virginia. Carrie, thank you so much for having me. And can I just say, I covet writers' cruises in the Bahamas. (laughs) I think everybody probably does. (laughs) It's like getting to go and have, you know, your way paid because you're sort of working just makes it even better. I, um, I, I, I only wish that my office was that warm and full of snorkeling. Yeah, right? So that would probably be a plumbing problem, so no. Yes, it probably would, and I absolutely had got so little writing done, to be honest. I had great intentions, <laughs> but you know how that goes. Um, I do have to mention from your bio, I also am a coffee lover. Um, this is what I was laughing at myself with, because not being able to speak. <laughs> Caffeine. I don't know what that was all about because I live on that stuff. I mainline it. Um, I I would like to. That's one thing we're missing in our life. The Viking does not own a coffee shop. I, well, I will tell you, I am very spoiled because I come down every morning and I pour my my water because I'm supposed to drink lots of water. But while I'm sipping rather reluctantly at my water, all I have to do is my husband will already have ground coffee and set up the pot. And all I have to do is push the button and wait for it to brew. Oh. Um, so that's, that's how I start my writing day every day. Oh, see, that's lovely. I am the coffee maker at our house and I grind the coffee and then I do a pour over method because the pot doesn't make it 
I'm a snob. <laughs> the pot doesn't um, do it we right have, for me. <laughs> I, I understand we have at last count, um, I want to say seven, but I think it was 13 different brewing methods in our kitchen. <laughs> I am, and so Michael bought some crazy high tech pot that brews it at a higher temperature than most commercially available coffee makers. But when he is making it only for himself, he does what you do and he does a pour over. Because for me, it has to stay hot all morning. It's the best coffee. Yeah, yeah, that's what he says. (laughs) So, well, you know, we we would probably get along well. But um, we could spend this whole time talking about coffee, but we should probably move on to other subjects. Um, One of them being that I am just noticing something really cool here as I'm looking at your bio and your Amazon page. Um, Before I get there, I'm going to tell everybody a little bit about the book. Um, Virginia's here today to talk about while writing and writing life and coffee, clearly, but also about her brand new um, upcoming release, which is called Meg and Joe. And in case you couldn't guess from the title, this is a retelling of Little Women. And when I saw that this book was on the radar, I knew immediately I had to talk to Virginia because this is one of my favorite books. Um, Before we get into that, I need to say this, that she got a Publishers Weekly starred review for this book, which is a big deal. Um, They said, Cantra Charms in this outstanding update of Little Women, Louisa May Alcott's 19th century classic. The imaginative storytelling and sparkling prose makes this a winner. So I have to ask, how how did it feel to get that Publishers Weekly starred review? I will tell you that that's been on my bucket list and I squealed like a little girl and danced around my office. It was, it was amazing. Um, and Booklist gave it a starred review. Oh, wow. And then the American uh, Canadian Library picked it as a book of December. And I just found out yesterday that Library Reads picked it as one of their top 10 books for December. So I'm, I'm absolutely thrilled and a little bit terrified by the reception <laughs> it's getting. Oh my gosh, that's absolutely incredible. It's on my bucket list too, that starred review thing. Um, so getting all of those, that is absolutely fantastic. And I, I, let's talk about that terrified thing a little bit. Um, sure. Because this is, I talk a lot about creativity in the process of writing and writing mindset on this podcast. And I think that fear we have of success is really fascinating to me and very common. So it, it's like the flip side for me, if I get a bunch of success, then I immediately tend to want to go into a down spiral of, oh my God, I'm getting success over here. So something else is going to be absolutely disastrous to compensate, right? I, I'm learning <laughs> that this isn't necessary, but now I'm curious about you know your reaction and what goes on in your head with that kind of um, enthusiastic early um, reaction to your book. Well, that's a, a great question. And it struck me, that fear struck me harder, I think, with this book because I wrote it without a contract. Oh, wow. So when I wrote it, there were no expectations. Um, 
I had, I, I took three years um, while I went through some family stuff um, and used that time to write about characters I really love and a story that has meant a lot to me at different times of my life. And so it's a deeply personal book that I took a long time to write. But other than my agent and my husband, nobody was reading it. So when it went to Berkeley, and I'm absolutely thrilled that it was was bought by my editor of the last mm, almost 15 years, I think, um, I couldn't have been happier, uh, sure. and 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 you know that that this book that was so personal to me was had had touched her that way, right? But because the, the problem is, you take mm -hmm. something that's that personal, and then you say it's Little Women, right? And you said at the beginning of the podcast that Little Women is one of your favorite books. Yep. And what that means is that I have to respect as my, my personal story goes out into the world that it's going to be read by intelligent women, enthusiastic readers, excited writers who also feel this deep personal connection to the book or maybe to the movie or to you know, the BBC production that was out last year. So you not only have the story that I not only have the story that is in my heart um, and my own memories and experience of reading the book, then I have the original text, which I have now, I cannot put one more post-it note in that book. <laughs> Um, but then I also have the expectations and the memories um, of all of those readers who have responded to this wonderful book. Right. And you're, I think that it's, that's where a lot of the fear is. You, you, you can write the book for yourself and you hope it resonates with other people. And of course I'm thrilled with, with some of the early you know, criti critical reviews, um, you know, the industry reviews. But I also know that come publication day, it's going to be read by a lot of readers who, who have a very deep personal connection to the story. And, and so that, that's the terrifying part. Sure. And I, and I can totally see that. And I'm going to be really honest. So my initial reaction was, wow, that's a really rather brave <laughs> A brave thing to do. Um, you mean she, like, what was she thinking? <laughs> well, I had that for a minute, I'll be honest. Um, to take a story that is, as you say, so beloved and mm -hmm. kind of almost sacred to some of us, right? You know, my, yes, my copy too. of Little Women is uh, falling apart and I... I had it half memorized, you know. Sure. Christmas won't be any won't be Christmas without any presents, said Joe. <laughs> right? Yep. 
So during the time you were writing this book, then um, you were going through three years of your own family stuff, which I, I feel is really connected to the theme and the plot of the story that you wrote. Can you talk about the impact of that and how the writing and the family stuff kind of dovetailed for you? Absolutely. Um, although it was difficult because when I originally planned the book, um, both of my parents were healthy and alive. The precipitating incident in Meg and Joe is actually uh, Marmy being sick, which makes sense because she's such a strong, powerful woman that to get her daughters to kind of come of age, um, you almost need to remove a little bit of that support. Because right. otherwise... <laughs> Yeah, as long as she is so strong, then they're all going to be relying on her rather than... Right. And and you see that a lot in Little Women is anytime the girls have a problem, they run to Marmy. And I think I even start Meg's chapter, first chapter in her point of view with something like, I didn't want to be one of those women who runs to her mother every time something goes wrong in her in my marriage. Um, so to have that as kind of, of the, the hook into the story and to get, um, you know, the, the mom being sick made a whole lot of sense for me when I was planning the book. I had not counted on the fact that my own dad um, would have health issues and in fact die. Um, and that my mom who was married to him for 65 years and is indeed a very strong woman um, would also then have some health issues. And I am the daughter who lives closest to my parents. And I think a lot of women can, can relate to that, to that caretaker role. Sure. Um, I will tell you that there were whole scenes that I chopped of Meg feeling put upon and, and overwhelmed and slightly resentful. Um, because I think I may have internalized it a little too much. <laughs> well, but writing is therapeutic. Yeah, I mean, there, there's no way around that, you know, especially if we're writing something that's connected to what's going on in our lives, and it is something difficult and sad. Um, I find it certainly does tend to find its way into whatever I'm doing. Yeah, so therapeutic. And because a lot of the book is about family roles and expectations and how we either, you know, there's, there's, am I my mother's daughter or am I daddy's girl? Mm -hmm. uh, and those are themes that I kind of explore in the book. And it was really interesting, right? Right there, I'm just going to say because I always thought of Joe in the original book as you know definitely a daddy's girl. Um, Absolutely. And and in in your retelling, maybe not maybe not as much. Or really actually, no, she definitely sees herself that way uh, at the beginning of the book, and that was in fact my role growing up. Uh huh. Um, you know, the idea was that it always made more sense to me that I got to sit at the table and talk about books with my father than that I would actually have to get up and clear the dishes. <laughs> uh, and I, and I think you see that, I think that the relationship between Joe March and Mr. March 
is not unlike the relationship between Lizzie Bennet and Mr. Bennet in mm-hmm. Pride and Prejudice. Mm-hmm. What's interesting, though, is that Mr. March, who is kind of this remote and saintly figure in um, Little Women, I, I think there were certain things that, that Louisa May Alcott may not have been sharing. I mean, people talk a lot about how autobiographical the book is. Mm-hmm. But the actual real-life Bronson Alcott was not only a transcendentalist thinker and scholar and a, a reformer in education, uh, he was also a horrible father and husband. Um, well, and, and in Little Women, he's actually kind of just absent. Right. <laughs> a lot, you know? Right. I, we, we know that he's loved, but we don't see him on the page really hardly at all. No, he's this sort of, I think at one point she refers to him as a, kindly deity presiding over the activity of the household from his study. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I did actually do a deeper dive both into Louisa May Alcott's relationship with her father um, and his marriage to, you know, her mom. Um, and I also then had a chance to kind of think about my own acceptance of my dad as as a human being um and not just as my father and so i had it was it was challenging to go to those places but i think those are the scenes that have maybe it's just for me but i think they have much more power because i did i was as honest as i could be Right. And, and it's, that, that's a difficult thing to do. I really, I, um, as I, as I'm looking at the book, I really do admire, um, the way you were able to take the characters and put them in some different situations. It's not a straight retelling in a modern day setting. It's a very different story in a lot of different ways while keeping the themes the same was that was that what you planned to do when you started yeah I didn't actually I didn't think of it as a retelling that's that's I guess a publishing way to talk about it Mm -hmm. um the writerly way that I had been thinking of it when I was writing it all by myself in isolation for three (laughs) years uh the way I was thinking of it was as a reimagining mm-hmm uh, it's a it the book I first read the book when I was about I'm going to say nine or ten years old, and I read an abridged version, which was a present from my grandmother to my sister and me. How little women can you get? Uh, because it was a book for girls. Right. I did not read the unabridged version until I was an English major. Uh, in college. Oh my God, really? And I was so struck. But well, because I thought I had read the book. Right. Right. I read the I read this book. It's a good book. You know, it was just full of girls doing interesting things. Um, I loved the book. I read it often, but I thought that I was reading the book. So I didn't read the unabridged Little Women um, until I was a freshman in college. Um, I actually have the centennial edition with, with its gorgeous uh, Jesse Wilcox Smith 
illustrations. Um, and it was so much richer, of course, than I remembered. So much. so much more complex. There's so much more going on. And I read it then, have read it periodically at different points in my life, and it's had different meanings. Yeah. And so what I wanted to do was bring in a little bit how those themes, which are very modern, which are very contemporary, it's all about, you know, creative desire, but also the need to make money is a theme in the book. Um, who you are away from your parents, it's a theme in the book. How you adjust to, how you tweak your dreams when your dreams come crashing against reality, which happens to Meg, who marries, you know, this wonderful man and has two twin toddlers. And a lot of that second half of Little Women is about her her figuring out love and marriage after the wedding. Well, when I read the book, after you know, as a woman at home with three children under the age of five. Oh, yeah. Those parts of the book really resonated for me. Right. So, so what I wanted to do was, was take, I, I talked before about, you know, you have these expectations and these memories and this experience of writing the book. And so some of my experience of writing the book is in Meg and Joe. Um, and I also am surprised that for a book that has never been out of print, I was taken aback by the number of women who have not read the book. And so for them, um, I do, I wanted to make it fun. I wanted to make it fresh. I wanted to make it relatable. And if it inspires them to pick up the original, I'll be thrilled. <laughs> right. I, I'm thinking about what you said, um, you know, reading it at different times. When I, um, when I picked up the book, I was oh, young and I did not have the abridged the first time. Uh -huh. For me, that, I, was, I had forgotten this until you were talking about it. That was the book that taught me an absolute abhorrence. And abs I get like irate with abridged books. And it was that that did it for me, actually, because I had read the first one first. And then somebody mm -hmm. gave me an abridged and I was not impressed. <laughs> oh, heck no. I mean, no. When, I, will, I will tell you that when my daughter... Uh, read the book for the first time. It was my copy, and it was the unabridged version. And Absolutely, but when I when I did read it, you know, originally the first time, uh, a one of the things that really, really, really made me unhappy was that Joe did not end up with Laurie, and <laughs> that she married some old guy, right? Mm -hmm. So when I was 12 and reading it the first time, but then going back to it as an adult, there was this moment where I was doing one of my rereads and I realized what an absolutely beautiful love story that is. <laughs> so yeah. coming at it at different times in your life really totally does change, uh, which, which just speaks to what a brilliant book it was to start with. I, I, I find it very interesting. Um, and again, trying to think now, I hope that it's very, very clear, nothing but respect and homage to Louisa May Alcott, but just as she kind of pulled her punches on the depiction of Mr. March, mm -hmm. she also, um, there, there's one scene 
there is one scene where Joe March in New York is going up the stairs of the boarding house and she knocks open the door of Frederick Bear's room. Right. And she sees him in his shirt sleeves. <laughs> and it is for a moment a sexy, sexy moment when she sees this man without his coat. Yes. Um, and then she immediately covers it up because I think he's got like, he's, he's, he's babysitting little Tina, you know, at the moment. And so right, right, he immediately, right. immediately buries that mature, sexy moment in, but Bear is a great father figure. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> um, and then there's another moment of real passion, which even when I read it at like 12, I still, it's still, I think it's one of the most romantic moments in literature. It's like, it's like that moment in the Scarlet Pimpernel when the Scarlet Pimpernel follows behind Marguerite and kisses every step where her foot has trod. Yeah, see, some of these things, like, they stick with you. Um, there's, there's a moment in Little Women when he kisses her picture in the dark. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know this book, right? So when I, when I looked at, I know that there are people who are Team Lori and will always be Team Lori. <laughs> um, but again, I can only speak to my own experience of, of what love and mature love and passion look like. And so I tried to take those moments in Little Women that spoke to me and put them in a way that they touched other people too. Yeah. Well, and, and again, I, I love that you've done this, that you've <laughs> taken yourself on this creative journey um, through a book that you loved and then revisioning it, playing with the themes, exploring them in different angles, um, expanding on the original in some ways. And um, it's just, it's a beautiful thing to have done and, and a gift, I feel, really. Uh, you know, you're, you're talking about the people who've never read the original and now here's an opportunity for a whole new audience to fall in love with these characters that we... You know, I'm very excited about it. I love retellings. I love Jane Austen retellings. Um, I love Charlotte Bronte retellings. Louisa May Alcott, there aren't a lot of... of there, there are these wonderful visual feasts, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Who doesn't want to see Winona Ryder and Susan Sarandon and Christian Bale, right? Right. Um, so that a lot of us grew up on that 1994 movie as well. But we, there aren't as many literary or, you know, novel treatments of, of little women. Uh, so I hope, I hope that I, it, it was a privilege for me to write this book. It was a pleasure for me to write this book. Um, I, hope, I hope people like reading it. Well, we always hope. We always hope that. Right? That's the, and, and, and I know that's always the, until the readers 
have found the book and you get that reader reaction, it never really seems real. It's not really a book until, because I feel very strongly about this. It's not, it's not a one-way street. It's not like we as writers write a book and then it's done. It doesn't really become real and alive until there's, there's that interaction of readers who read and react and see it in their own way and experience it, that it really becomes a living, breathing that's absolutely true. I mean, the story, you know, it starts in your head and then you put it on the, and your heart and you put it on the page, but it's not until it reaches the reader's head and heart that your job is done. True. Um, and of course, complicating the creative part now is that I'm writing Beth and Amy. You're, you're writing who? Beth and Amy. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. That was my clock chiming in the background. <laughs> oh, that's why I have one of those at home too. I love it. So I, yeah. So Beth and Amy, so you're writing them as well. Yes. And uh, so that's a little, I, I know what their journey is. I know what their arc is, but it's, I'm, because I wrote Meg and Joe in such a protected space, mm -hmm. I'm trying very hard not pick my head up too far while I'm writing Beth and Amy. Ah, right. I, I hear that. And that's always the challenge, especially with the book coming out. But the book is going to be here. And really, this is perfect, just in time for Christmas, because I know we all love that first scene, the first family. Well, you know, it's, it's funny because I, I wrote it originally with that Christmas prologue. Mm -hmm. And then I was concerned because it's, it is such a, it's the, it's the only scene in the book other than the girl's memories that's firmly in, in the, in their childhood, in almost the cadence that will be familiar to people who grew up with and loved the original story. Mm -hmm. It's the only part of, it's the only chapter in the book that's for in third person, for example. Right. Um, and so I originally wrote it that way, and then I was like, it gets picked up and used later in the book, and so I actually like just picked it up and moved it to later in the book. So it's not there anymore, the version that I- No, it is, it is, it okay. is, because what happened is my editor said, you know, it would be so nice if we had a scene of the girl's childhood at the beginning of the book, and I'm like, gotcha covered there, you know. So that was that actually happened at revisions. It moved back to its original place. Oh, okay, because I was going to say the that's copy I have. It's still there, right? The yes, it's supposed to be there. It's supposed to be there. So oh, good. So available in stores December three, I believe. Yes, I'm very excited. We're having a party. There will be cake. Oh, there should be cake and <laughs> and Christmas things also. I would think so. Um. The book is Meg and Joe. Again, um, we're speaking with Virginia Cantra, who is the lovely author. And Virginia, we want to talk about where they can find you if readers want to, um, if our listeners want to track you down and stalk you. I'm everywhere. No, thank you very much, by the way, Carrie, for having me. Oh. Um, I, I am, I am, of course, have a website, virginiacantra.com. I am on Facebook as Virginia Cantra Books. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Virginia Cantra. And I have resisted Snapchat so far. <laughs> I don't even really, I know that Snapchat exists and that's as far as I've gotten with that one. <laughs> 
So I thank you for being here. I wish you the absolute best of luck with this book. Readers are going to love it, I know, and it's going to be a wonderful addition to the women's fiction genre. So um, thank Thanks. you again. Thank you so much for having me. It has been uh, a real pleasure to talk with you about the book and um, happy reading. Right. Happy reading. And to those of you out there listening, also, as I always tell you, it's your turn. You go do something creative.